Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. Pull out your Crosswalk notes. Inside your program, you've got a white half sheet that you can use to follow along in today's message. It has all the Bible passages that we're going to be going through. If you brought a Bible, uh, or if you have a Bible app on your phone, feel free to pull your phone out, open uh, up, up your Bible app. We're gonna be in 1 Timothy chapter six for, for most of what we're studying today, although there'll be a couple of other uh, passages as well that we'll have a look at. Three or four years ago, I actually was trying hard to remember whether this was three Christmases ago or four Christmases ago, and frankly, I can't remember. So we'll just say three or four Christmases ago, about two or three days before Christmas, I had decided that I was going to take a shortcut home. So I was driving up 15th Avenue uh, off of uh, Dobbins, headed home, and really not paying very close attention, I I really had needed to hear Pastor Dan's messages on being uh, burnt out and booked up, and I was feeling burnt and booked up, completely distracted by everything in the Christmas season, making my way home up 15th Avenue. You may know that particular stretch of 15th Avenue. Uh, That's the place where the police academy is, and you'll sometimes hear gunfire from that direction. It's the police practicing their their weapons. And I was driving and lurking behind a bush was a bright, shiny man with a badge and a radar gun. Oh yeah. And of course, being distracted, I was not paying attention in the least on how fast I was going on this 25 mile per hour stretch of road. And right before I got to him, he stepped out from behind that creosote bush, a nice thick creosote bush, held up his radar gun in his other hand and stopped me. I rolled down the window and uh, proceeded to be told that I was gonna receive a citation for going over the speed limit. That Christmas, I ended up spending $200 on a nice little eight-hour class to learn how to be a slower driver in a 25-mile-per-hour driver zone. That was money I was not intending to spend that Christmas. And, uh, And furthermore, it taught me a lesson. It taught me that when I get distracted and when I'm not paying attention, sometimes I can do things to excess. And that particular day, my distraction, my not paying attention, my being tired, overbooked, all that stuff that we've been talking about in this Christmas hangover series, it led to me being excessive in my speed. And guess what? As we've heard several times already, when you do things excessively, almost always there's a hangover to come. There's a price to pay for doing that thing excessively. For me, in that particular case, it was both time and money that I had to now invest to get myself out of that situation. I got to thinking about this because I think this is often also what happens when we get into excessive spending habits at Christmas. 
is that there is so much going on. The, the previous two messages that we've talked about and our energy levels are low because we've been so busy and we just wanna get stuff done and so we get on Amazon and we go to the mall and we are pulling toys off of shelves and, and sweaters and whatever you're buying to, to buy the presents that you wanna buy and that credit card comes out and boom, before you know it, you've racked up quite a credit card bill and, and part of it is simply because you're tired, you're exhausted and you're distracted and then January comes. Do you know what tomorrow is called in England? It's called National Debt Day. And the reason it's called National Debt Day is that this is the day when the credit card bills begin to come in. And people begin to realize there's a piper to pay for all that spending. I was interested to see, you know, what, what's the general trend around Christmas time for most of us? You realize that the average American spends $1,200 at Christmas time, not just on gifts, gifts, Christmas trees, meals and parties, and travel. $1,200 unique to Christmas spending. A quarter of us put that on our credit card because we don't have the cash to pay for it. And I don't know if you know this, this is obviously much more than just a Christmas issue. What they've done is they've studied what happens when we put something on our credit card and on average, when you put something and you charge it to your credit card, you are now going to pay 112% of the original value of that item that you've just purchased. That's more than double. And this has created such an issue that in March, they've looked at all the bankruptcy filings and a third of the bankruptcy filings in the month of March list Christmas overspending as a factor in declaring bankruptcy. That's how bad it gets. Now I wanna assure you, as we dive into this message, as I, as I did already, I, I don't want this to be today a money harangue. I, I want it to be healing. And the reason for that is I've been there. Julie and I together have been there. We, uh, we, we had a, 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 part, a, a place in our life a number of years ago where we looked at the mountain of debt that we had built up. And, and, and one last statistic for you. If you spread our debt out across all Americans, it's, it's $7,200 worth of consumer debt that we owe on average as Americans. But if you are a person, that includes people who don't engage in credit card spending. If you focus in only on people who use their credit cards and who use it uh, for consumer debt, that number rises to $15,600. Julie and I had a, a time in our life where we would have looked at $15,600 and said, oh man, I wish we were there because we were far more in debt than that. And, and I know how it felt when we were digging that hole and when we had dug that hole and it was not a good feeling. And that's why I say to you today, if you're here and, and this has happened to you, either the short-term issue of Christmas overspending or you have a longer-term issue where you're almost permanently in debt now, 
I, I want this message to be a healing message for you. And of course, in order for that to happen, this is what Julie and I learned, we had to face facts one day. And so also in this message, there's gonna be a little bit of peeling back the bandage and opening up the wound a little bit, but this is all in the interest of showing you how God, how Jesus wants to help you with this and where it starts. And what we're gonna learn is it doesn't start with your credit card. It, it starts in a far deeper, more important place that we have to look at carefully and then own up to what's going on there. So let's, let's dive in. And as I said, we're gonna be looking at 1 Timothy chapter six. Just so you know what's going on here, this is the Apostle Paul. It's one of his later letters. It's probably shortly before Paul is actually executed uh, for believing in Jesus by the Roman government. He is writing to a young man. This would be like Pastor Dan or myself writing to Phil and saying, Here's, here are some things that I want you to know for carrying out your ministry. And, and, and so he writes this letter to help Timothy be a great pastor. Timothy has been shifted to a city called Ephesus. And that's where he's pastoring. And in chapter six, Paul gets almost the most personal of the entire letter. And he actually calls Timothy man of God. He's, he's really talking to him personally. But interestingly, the things that he says to this young pastor, Timothy, are things that apply to all of us. Every one who is a follower of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's dive in. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul starts out on a very important note, and I want you to underline some words. Take your crosswalk pen, that beautiful green crosswalk pen that you got, or another one if you prefer. I want you to underline the words godliness and contentment. Those are the key terms here. Godliness is when a person puts their faith and their hopes into God. And it doesn't stop there. Once your faith and your hope rests on God, you believe that what God is saying to you in the Bible is really real, it's true, and it's something that you can base your life on and live according. It's, it's, it's no longer just something that you go, hmm, that's interesting. That's good for others. When you get to godliness now, your trust, your life is resting in Jesus. Your heart is hanging on that cross and all that it represents, the mercy and the love and the forgiveness and what you know all that tells you about the kind of God that you have. You put your heart there and that's where godliness begins and then from there it, it, it works its way out into your mind and your behavior. That is where it starts. Now he adds to this, if you add to that godliness component, if you add contentment, then what does he tell you? You tell me what he tells you. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. So let's talk about contentment. Contentment is when you're sitting at the Christmas table and someone is bringing you more turkey, more mashed potatoes, 
more ham, and you hold up your hand and you say what? I'm good. I'm good. I've had enough. I, I don't need any more. I can, I can sit right here. But this is, this is not just at the Christmas table. This is where we're able to look at our home and say, you know what? This is a beautiful home. I'm good. We're able to look at the, the wheels that we drive and go, man, this, is, this, this car, this truck, this whatever, we live in Levine, it's all I need. I'm good. The clothes that I wear, I'm good. It's that feeling of satisfaction. That's what the original term for contentment literally means is I'm good. So you combine setting your hopes and your trust on Jesus with a mentality of gratitude that says, I'm good, I've been blessed so greatly, and that is going to equal great gain. I want, we gotta start there, write that down. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Now that's a truth that Jesus wants us to hold deep in our heart and then to live according to. And, and it's definitely a truth that he wanted this young pastor, Timothy, to hold in his heart and live according to as he led other Christ followers. And so he goes on and he says, let me paint the other side of this for you, Timothy. You know that godliness and contentment are great gain, but I want to show you the other side. Now, it's interesting, before he does that, do you notice what he says to Timothy in this, in this verse just before we move on, Paul says, I want you to realize life is a circle. What did you come into this life with, Timothy? Nada. And what are you going to leave this life with? You see, when we came into this world, we weren't carrying a suitcase. And your mom is so happy about that. <laughs> She's thrilled. And when you leave, like the old saying goes, you're not going to carry a suitcase. There won't be any moving van. There's not trunks of stuff. You're not going to empty out the garage and go, this has to come with me. That's not happening. Just as you came into this world with nothing, you're going to leave the world with nothing. Everything goes full circle. Paul says, Timothy, never forget that because all this in-between stuff that we think that matters so much and that you might even as a pastor think man, I've sacrificed so much or, or I wish I had more or whatever it is, drop that notion because you came with nothing, you're going with nothing at the end of the day. Now, the opposite side. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Can we just take a look at the verbs here? Because the verbs tell us the other side of the story. See, what Paul wants us to know is it's not about the cash. And it's not about the possessions either. That's not the deal. Look at the verbs. Those who what? Want. Will you circle that word? Those who want to get rich 
fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We, we have to understand this. Money itself, possessions themselves are neutral spiritually. It's, it's all about where our heart is resting. Remember, godliness is when I rest my hope and my faith in Jesus and in God. Paul's now talking about what happens when you rest your faith and your hopes in money. And that's a heart thing. He goes on, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, see the heart? Eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I hope you've circled want, love, and eager because that shows us where the true issue is. It's, it's in our hearts. It, it's, it's that our hearts are seeking to find security, seeking to find a measure of control of a life that can so seem out of control at times, uh, uh, maybe it's our identity. We want to be seen as a successful together person and money or possessions have become our measure of who we are. And so we get eager for money. We start to love money because we think that will show people and thus show me who I really am. And Jesus says, that's a trap. Paul says, that's a trap. Those who want to get rich Fall. You've heard it said before, I'm sure. Pride comes before a fall. We're going to hear the Apostle Paul say to the Colossians in just a moment that greed is idolatry and greed also comes before a fall. That's what he's telling Timothy. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. Would you picture a big old bear trap? Big old steel jawed trap with very sharp teeth. See, that's, that's what Paul is saying here. There's a bear trap for, for people whose hearts have begun to establish themselves and build an idol out of money and stuff. They fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is literally like saying, picture greed as someone who grabs you by the back of your hair and, and holds your head underwater and tries to drown you. That's what greed's doing to you spiritually, to your, to your soul. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so Paul says, we gotta be serious about this. Julie and I had to come to a point one day where we, where we said, look, we have to become serious about this. And, and we cannot play with this anymore. Look at what Paul says. How serious? Put it to death. The same way that greed wants to grab you by the back of the head and, and hold you underwater spiritually and drown you, Paul says you grab it by the back of the head and hold it underwater and you Drown it. 
Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. It's, it, it's not all greed. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Don't play. Put it to death. So write this down. Idolatry plus discontent equals a big trap. And I'm not going to dive deep into these. I think most of you can, can probably relate to each of these in a little bit different way. But a money hangover, a post-Christmas money hangover can be a trap on many levels. First of all, there's the physical trap of having to deal now with all your debt. How are you going to pay all this off? I, I remember when we were in debt and tried it, try it. finally we realized we got to dig our way out of this. Uh, the Bible says the borrower is slave to the lender. We don't want to be slaves anymore. We want to, free, we want to be emancipated from this. And, and one of the first steps was calling all the credit card companies and seeing if we could negotiate a 21 or an 18% rate down to something lower, and if not, move to a different credit card. Oh my gosh. It was horrible. But it was also important to do, and it was the beginning of us taking steps. But the sacrifices that we had to make, the things that we couldn't do for our kids and so on, that's all part of the physical trap of having to deal with our debt. There's the rational trap of having a constantly preoccupied mind. How are we going to deal this? What's the plan for that? It's, it's never fun when you're constantly preoccupied. You're trying to do your work, you wanna, you wanna do well at things, and you can't get that debt and that greed off your mind. And then there's the emotional trap of worry. You get one of those phone calls. When are you gonna pay me? And not all debt collectors are bad people. Some of them really wanna help you, but nevertheless, you get that call that says, when are we gonna be paid? Oh my gosh. It's an emotional trap of worry and grief. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, again, I hope this is sounding compassionate. I, I know I'm opening up a wound here. It's a wound that I've, I've experienced and I know how painful it can be. But I want this to be healing and we have to understand what it is. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is... Um, confronted by a young man, and this young man teaches us what the biggest trap of all is. He's a very wealthy young man. And at the end, he walks away sad after his encounter with Jesus. And I'll tell you the rest of the story in, the, in, the, in just a moment, but look at how this ends up. After this rich young man walks away, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. See what he says to him? Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now let me tell you something here, something very important. I, I said already, it's not about the money and possessions. And for many of us, we hear that passage and, and we think, well, I'm not rich. But let me tell you something. If you live in 21st century United States of America and you happen to take a leap back to Jesus' day, 
Do you know how wealthy you would have been considered in that day if you took what you have from here back there? You would have been considered an incredibly wealthy person. And, and, and truly, we are in this country. Even the poorest of us comparing with other Americans are, are usually and actually very, very wealthy on a, on a physical level when you compare it to the rest of the world and the rest of history. And so this is a trap that we have to watch out for. Now, let me tell you what I think the real trap was, what, what really caused this man to walk away sad. And for that, if you want to follow me, I'm in Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to read some of the verses previous to, to this and tell you the story. This young man comes up and he's actually a guy that you'd go, huh, I kind of admire that about him. He's seeking. He wants to find God. He wants to find the way to eternal life. The first question out of his mouth is, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And that tells us not only that he's seeking God and seeking eternal life, but he's probably a very moral guy. He's, he's a person that's really striving to live a good life. And, and this is underlined when Jesus then goes on and he says, well, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And this young man responds, I think very sincerely, Jesus, I'm a moral man. I'm a good man. I've done all that. And then he asks a question that is very telling. And the thing that I, I want to ask you today to look out for in your own heart. What do I still lack? Those words are so important because do you know what this guy had come to Jesus seeking? He had come to Jesus seeking an add-on. He had come to Jesus seeking something to fill maybe a little gap that he felt in his life. He was wealthy and successful. And when he came to Jesus, he was thinking, I, I just need a little more. I need another bump. I want to be extra safe, extra in control. I want to feel extra secure and really be at peace. Maybe if I add this Jesus guy into my life, maybe if I add a, a little bit more of what he has to teach, I'll be good. Let me ask you honestly. How many of us have come here today and you know as a church we love guests and we love our members, but how many of us have come here today with what do I still lack in our minds? In other words, Jesus to us is an app that we add to the iPad of our life. He's an add-on. And we're getting along pretty well with the apps that we already have, but if we had the Jesus app, maybe that'd be even better for us. And so we, we come to church thinking, maybe if I add on a little bit of church, maybe if I add on a little bit of Bible, maybe if I add on a little bit of Jesus, I'll be better off. And you know what Jesus is saying to all of us? Do you know why this young man walked away sad? Because Jesus looked back to him and he said, if you, if you want to have eternal life, go and sell everything that you have and come and follow me. You know what Jesus was telling him with that? I'm not an app. I'm not a program. I'm a whole new operating system. 
I, I'm, I'm a whole new portable device. I am the thing. And, and how many of you are here today and you realize that in your life you've been searching for it? And you've gone through stages in your life when you thought it was this thing or that thing and then you got that thing and you realized, ah, oh, I thought that was it. I thought that if I met the right person, that would be it and I would be fulfilled and happy in life. I thought if I got this new job, it seemed like it, it has so much meaning and purpose that that would be it and I would go to work every day just feeling so passionate and enthusiastic and that's not it either. I thought if that my, my, my savings in my bank account reached this certain level, that would be it. I would feel safe and secure. There, there I am. I found it. And every time you thought you found it, whatever it was, you realized, dang, that's not it. You know why not? Because there's only one it. And it is a he, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is it. He is the one and only. His grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his cross, his empty tomb. The whole reason we celebrated Christmas is that God sent you a savior from your sins and the one who wants to give you eternal life. That's it. The one who shows you how big God's heart is for you, that he would sacrifice and give up everything so that you could have him and have eternal life and forgiveness along with him. Jesus cannot be received as an add-on or an app because he is a whole new life, a whole new operating system. And that's where that guy got trapped. I want you to write this down at the bottom of the page and then we'll flip the page. There's a physical trap, there's a rational trap, there's an emotional trap when we make money it. But the greatest trap is the spiritual trap of sacrificing our relationship to God. Proverbs 10.15 says, here's why it's so hard for a wealthy man to get in harder than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. He says, a big part of the issue is that when we get wealthy, we make that our fortified city. That becomes our go-to place. And now, I know that money is not that go-to place for all of you, but if, if you've engaged in shopping therapy when you're stressed and, and your, your hair is standing out and you don't know what to do, and you're like, got to go to the mall, got to get on Amazon, then you might be in danger of this. But I'm, I'm going to tell you something. There's something kind of interesting about greed and, and putting your faith and your hope in money. It presents sometimes in very opposite ways. And if, you, if you're a married couple, you've seen this. In, in many married couples, there's one for whom money is an idol in such a way that they become spenders. And acquiring the next thing makes them feel good for a little while. And so they're constantly out there shopping and acquiring stuff. And that one's probably pretty easy to see that there's a danger of greed. But there's a, an almost opposite one that could actually portray the same heart of greed. And that's the person who's a very passionate saver. 
And I've seen this in, in married couples sometimes where you've got one who's a spender and one who's a saver and that creates all this conflict and the saver is kind of like the Pharisee. I thank you, Jesus, that you have not made me like my wife who likes to spend all the time. Because he feels really good. Look, we're saving. We got college. We got that going on. We're saving for retirement. But guess what? If all those savings becomes your idol... And, and you're doing that because now you feel safe and secure and in control, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter how it presents itself because it's all about what's going on in here. Where is your true safety, your true security, your true fortified city? And remember what Jesus is telling you. Jesus is saying to you, I'm not an, an extra turret on your fortified city so that you can shoot more people when they try to attack you. I am not adding more big stones to make the walls higher. I'm a whole new city. And if money has become your fortified city, if wealth is your fortified city, he is saying move out of that city entirely and get yourself to a whole new city. Me. But you, man of God, Paul says it this way, exactly what I just said, but listen to how he says it to Timothy. But you, man of God, Timothy, and you, men and women of God, flee from all this. Book it out of there. Run away from this as fast as your legs can carry you. And pursue this instead. Instead of pursuing wealth, instead of pursuing money, instead of pursuing peace and happiness there, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Those are the things to chase. And for us to want to chase those, we have to realize that there's a cross-shaped hole in every one of our hearts that can only be filled with the cross. And that if we try to stuff that cross-shaped hole with money or possessions, or as Paul said earlier with porn on the internet or whatever it might be, you're never going to be completely satisfied. You might feel better for just a little while, but that's not gonna do it. Only the cross of Jesus Christ is it. Only the cross of Jesus Christ is our fortified city. Only the cross of Christ and that hole that we have in our heart for that can lead us to say, let's run after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Will you write this down? For Jesus to have his rightful place in our hearts, we, we have to feel our need for him. We have to understand that there's something going on in our hearts that causes us to look for it. Why are you looking for it? Why am I looking for it? Because there is a hole in our hearts. And what Jesus is saying is, I want to fill that hole. I want to fill this need. Andrew Carnegie, anybody heard of Andrew Carnegie? Carnegie Hall? Huge industrialist from the early 20th century became ultra, ultra wealthy at age 33. 
He, he was so wealthy and he began to sit down. Young man, and he did something completely unique to all these major industrialists of the early 20th century. He wrote himself a note. Note, memo to self. He said, Brother Andrew, I'm giving you two more years to do this chasing after money gig that you're doing because I can tell it's corrupting you already. He's writing this note to himself. Amazing, it's still there. Anyone can read it. He notices the effect that this pursuit of wealth and money has made on his own heart and, and, and vows that by the time he's 35, he's 33, by the time he's 35, I'm out because this is gonna kill my heart. This is pure, he calls it idolatry in this note. I see it twisting me up. Do you know what Andrew Carnegie did at age 35? Well, I can tell you this, he didn't leave his life of wealth and being an industrialist that formed U.S. Steel, that's the big corporation that made him ultra, ultra wealthy. He ended up building not only Carnegie Hall, but 2,000 plus libraries. Did it affect his heart? One day, one of his uh, steel workers was asked, aren't you so proud of your of your boss. He's built all these libraries, Carnegie Hall. He's done amazing things with his wealth. And this, this worker said to him, that's all fine, but I just wish he would pay us. Most, most steel workers were living in little hovels. They worked 12-hour shifts. The floor was so hot on the, uh, where they were manufacturing the steel, they could not wear their shoes. They had to build their own wooden platforms to walk around on to keep the heat from burning them right through their shoes. They got one day off every two weeks, but only if they worked a 24-hour shift, solid, straight, before their day off. When they struck, so the story goes, he hired Pinkertons. The Pinkertons fired into the crowd. Do you think it twisted up his heart as he feared and yet he still couldn't get out? Do you see the jaws of the trap? And, and that's why we have to be so careful around this thing and instead of feeling a need to become constantly wealthy, a need to constantly compare. Have you noticed that in yourself? No matter where you're at, your eyes tend to focus on the people who are financially ahead of you. And you're like, I gotta close that gap. I gotta keep running this race because I wanna have what they have. And instead, run away from that fortified city and run to that fortified city, Jesus and his cross. Now, this ain't easy. I'm not gonna lie. Look at what the disciples say when, when, when Jesus says it's, it's hard for a wealthy man to go into the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard Jesus say this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Is this even possible, Jesus? Can anyone be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Paul does a marvelous job of explaining what that means when he says, 
for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it possible for you and I to be saved? As much of a temptation as it is for us to make wealth and the love of money our idol, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know the immense wealth, the spiritual blessings that God has given us in his son Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and we know how he obtained that wealth for us by giving everything that he had away, including his life, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Do you know how all this changes? How the, the Christmas hangover of, of debt and getting out of that? A lot of people would say, just follow Jesus' example, follow the Bible's rules, understand the laws. And we could, we could talk to you about, about first fruits giving. We could, we could talk to you about making a regular gift. We could talk to you about generosity. All that would be, however, law. And I would be getting into a harangue. I'm not saying it's unhelpful. It is very helpful. I encourage you to read it on your own in the Bible. Here's what I want to tell you today. Hug that cross. Go back to this passage of how much Jesus loves you. It's the gospel. It's God's grace. It's the truth of how much Jesus loves you that he was amazingly generous and gave up his entire life because his heart for you is, is huge. And Jonathan said it so well, God's heart is for his son, Jesus, but God's heart is equally for you and for me, and that's why he sacrificed his son. That's why Jesus willingly went to the cross. He said, no man takes my life from me. I willingly give it up. He, he willingly out of his heart of love for you, gave it all up so that you could become spiritually wealthy. The grace of God, the grace of God is what makes all things possible. Write that down. The more connected to grace, the more connected to the gospel, the more connected to Jesus' generosity we are, that's what changes us. And so Paul says, Take strong action. Jesus took strong action for you. Now you take strong action. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the fight. Jesus was generous to you. Now you be generous to your church, to your God, to your brother or sister in Christ, to your neighbor to your coworker, as much as you embrace Jesus' generosity for yourself, that's how much your heart is gonna change so that you embrace generosity toward others around you that God has placed around you. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul puts it this way in Corinthians. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Last point, write this down and then we'll pray. Jesus took strong action. His grace is costly to him, free to us, but costly to him. He took strong action to gain life from me. 
And I will take strong action to offer him thanks through my generosity toward others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, Lord God, we are so grateful for your amazing heart toward us, your generosity. And Lord, as we reflect back on on everything that happened at Christmas, whether it was our overbooked schedules, our, our drained energy from trying to do way too much, or if it's this, if it's, and now we gotta face the credit card bills. We ask you, Lord, to guard our hearts because that's where the problem really starts and in fact, that's where the problem really exists and ends too. We repent of sometimes making you, Jesus, just an add-on and an extra that we think is gonna help us feel that much more secure. Lord, help us to move out of that city and move to an entirely different city. Help us to stop viewing you as an app and see you as a whole new operating system in our lives. And as we get there, as we receive the wondrous riches of your grace, mercy, forgiveness, and peace, may you then through your spirit change our hearts so that we give back in gratitude to you, to our church, to the fellow members, brothers and sisters in Christ of our church, to our neighbors and community members, our coworkers, make us into equally generous people as you have been first toward us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to crosswalkphoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. We are so rich in forgiveness, in our relationship with Jesus, in the grace of God. And boy, that's a city that you can move into. That's, that's a whole new place to live And as you go out today, I I, I want that thought ringing into your mind. I, I, I need to leave behind any other city that I'm living in and go make Jesus my fortified city. Let me send you out with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen.